You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 51 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Reinvestigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, David Inhow and Connor Johnnan. For this episode, we are pleased to have our friend and colleague, Chris Rowe, return to the show. You may remember him early on from episode 12, Artifact Roadshows, where Chris had recently arrived to Augusta working with David at New South Associates. And for those of you who did not listen to the episode, we all went to graduate school. The University of Wyoming got her master's degree with uh, Mr. Rowe. So, Chris, how are you doing? What have you been up to since you were last on the podcast? I am doing fantastic. Not doing a lot, though. There's been a pandemic since the last time we spoke. So, been doing the same thing everyone else has. Zoom meetings and then eventually a nine to five workday and then fading into the abyss of television in the evenings. Fair enough, man. How has uh, Nebraska football fared this year? Oh, man. Uh, let's just skip past that part of it. Um, I do want to point out that we did a spring game, though. On um, I, It must have been like NCAA football 2007 or something like that, and they live streamed it. So they brought back like all – it was like the perfect Husker team versus the perfect Husker team. It's like all the stars from – from all the all the old times and it was it was pretty funny they had full on announcers for it and it lasted a good 45 minutes and <laughs> we watched it cuz what else are you going to do what else are you going to do but what can you do what can you do it is what it is <laughs> you guys are back into like actually working in the office at this point oh very much so yeah we uh can't really do our jobs very well from home for a sustained amount of time. I, I was telling Chris this the other day, and like I have friends that have been working remotely since lockdown last year. And like since they work very white collar jobs where like they can just, you know, use an Excel sheet at home remotely, they're like, well, just tell your boss like you just want to, you know, work from home. At least write him a letter. You know, it doesn't work like that. Like I have to be there to manage artifacts. And he's like, but surely there's something you could like, you could teach them virtually. And I'm like, no, they will replace me virtually if I do that. <laughs> and like Chris, Chris and I were talking about how that's like the blue collar, white collar divide of archaeology. Like it's honestly a blue collar job in a lot of ways. And Chris had a point something about trade schools. Yeah, yeah. It's just you know, it could be a trade degree. It could be a two year go to school, land in a job degree honestly i don't think i even understood or cared about theory in my undergrad right because yeah if you wanted to just do like for like people without an anthropology degree can do forest service archaeological reconnaissance i've seen that on people's applications before but like just with enough schooling to you know learn what lithics are like how to find them and like site deposition like you could easily do survey it's just the field school aspect. I mean, you could take, you could create that and transfer that into a trade school and mm-hmm. dibs on that idea. So none of y'all get that. <laughs> but like, obviously academic archeology span would still like be a four year thing. And like, you know, to get your RPA and all that, like <clears throat> I, I imagine that would be the same, but yeah. Know, over thought. And Chris, you are certified as a, if I remember correctly, you were an archaeologist over the summers back at Wyoming working for the Forest Service. And didn't you get like forest fire qualified or something? Because remember when we had that huge fire in, outside of Laramie, you were like raking in overtime just by sitting near the fire <laughs> trucks, just wait for it to burn out. That is pretty much exactly what happened. So I, w- <laughs> I, I went to fire school. I, I truly... Everyone raves about how they love going on fires and and doing firefighting with the Forest Service and stuff like that. For whatever reason, it's not for me. I I don't know if I was just too out of shape at that point in time, like it's changed. Uh, Still too out of shape to do it. I think if I had started it at like age 20, yeah, I'd be gung-ho about it. But, you know, it was... It was what can you do? Not, it was not for me. Uh, the overtime was super nice, and all I had to do was deliver supplies. And if you do that once a day and go out to the fire line, you get hazard pay. So it was a pretty sweet gig. Don't get me wrong. It was long hours and ate up a weekend. But Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I feel like there's a ton of people, a ton of archaeologists I know who have done that, worked in fire for the Forest Service, 
with an archaeology degree. I mean, it's it's interesting how much overlap there is. I mean, they probably just take whoever they can get, honestly, when when things get out of hand. Well, that and also there's the fire archaeology aspect of it as well that you have to consider. So you want to make sure that, you know, they're not going to run a dozer line through a through a listed site or something like that. So there is like spaces to do it as an archaeologist out there. But yeah, I am definitely in the minority on that where it wasn't for me. Everyone else that I've ever talked to has worked for the Forest Service. They love fire. It is their jam. I totally get it. I like campfires. I don't know what it was. It wasn't for me. <laughs> oh, I have a question though. Like, you know, to prevent the fires, like why don't you guys just rake the leaves? That is a good point. <laughs> I don't know why they haven't thought of that. Yeah. I just came up with it on the spot, much like a certain person did. You're going to have to run that up to the highest <laughs> echelons of the government. He's the highest of the high. I mean, he... The man tried to guess the cure for the coronavirus live on television. I think he um, <laughs> he figured out the forest service, forest fire issues with just a stroke of a word, you know? I don't know what we're going to do about this Biden guy. He's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Or or it could have been like a legit stroke. I don't know if it was a stroke of genius, but or a legit stroke that might have put him on the raking leaves thing. Yeah, and Biden's a mess, so hashtag Trump 2024. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. Don't you put that evil magic on me, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> Y'all can edit that out in post, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think, you know, kind of kind of circling back, you guys brought up an interesting point that I would like to, to get into before we get into the, the curation and collections thing about, like, could archaeology be a trade school? Because we haven't really talked about that. Recently, the CRM ARC podcast here on the APN that's hosted by one of our producers, Chris Webster, they were talking about how there's like a stigma in higher academia, specifically archaeology, PhD levels, a stigma against CRM and CRM work. I've only did like one CRM job back in with the Mountain Valley Pipeline for, you know, two months before moving out to Wyoming. But you guys are all making money professionals and I'm the idiot that decided to get a PhD like a moron. Do you guys think that your master's education really prepared the three of you to go into a professional hands-on archaeology career? Uh, yeah, hundred percent. When I got to grad school, I was, I thought I knew a lot and then I realized that I knew almost nothing. And so, yeah, I, I think it, it did prep me and, and going through it, like all of my advisors knew that I was going to be going into CRM in the end. Cause that's, that was my goal at the time. And it obviously worked out. So I think I, I kind of tailored my experience to that more so than some of the other folks that that tailor it towards maybe going on to doctoral school or focusing on academics. That, that's a great point, too, because like no one ever really talks about that. Like you're supposed to have an idea of what you want to do, like right when you go to grad school, like maybe what you want to research for a thesis or like in your case, like your job. But the interesting thing is, and I didn't learn this in class when I hated it, like theory class but now being like post-grad school for me, what your ideas of the past are and what you want to do and study about the past, when you're in theory class, you're molding that worldview. They're giving you the tools in which to do so. So like I did all my papers on the dog stuff and that's currently like all I think about now. But my thesis ended up being on something else. Yeah, do you guys see what I'm saying? Sorry, I'm going on a tangent. Like, it, like if you go into it, you get what you want out of it, mm -hmm. which could be, you know, biased as hell, but like, I don't know. Right. Well, I think the classic is that like you get kind of your your general understanding of anthropology from your undergrad and then you find your niche in grad school and you really narrow your focus. And I, yeah. I think that that plays out for just about everyone who makes it through grad school and onto the professional world. So you went right from grad school into the well, during grad school you were in the forest service. So like do you think like Carlton asked, like, did that really help? Like what you learned in theory and, and bio and linguistics? Somewhat. I tended to focus my classes like specifically on what I would be able to use in the real world. So like lithic classes, yeah. so art classes, things like that, because, you know, as a CRM archaeologist, you need to have a very broad understanding. Like you can't just go out there and be like, well, I'm only going to record prehistoric sites that 
are from the middle archaic. Like you can't do that. It's no, here's another cabin. Here's another mine. You have to record them because they're there. <laughs> so you, right. you, you have to know historic stuff too. You have to know pre-contact, you have to know historic and at least have a, a good enough grasp on, on stuff outside of your niche in order to, you know, write it down properly and record it. Cause most of the time, that's the only time that site is ever going to get looked at, especially if it's, you know, not eligible. You're just moving right along. No one's ever going to pay right. mind to it in the future. What are your thoughts, Connor? I I went into grad school kind of with a general idea, like a super, super general idea of what I wanted to do, not knowing if I was going to finish at a master's or anything like that. But I think theory and all the classes I took helped me understand what I was passionate about, what I really wanted to study and how you can apply certain things. So I think uh, grad school was more of a, a discovery moment than it was uh, a, a niche, finding a niche. And I think you're just given more opportunities to find out and be associated with certain projects and, and whatnot through the university as a grad student. I think that the right. opportunities just increase like an insane amount. What's your thoughts, Carlton? I don't know. I think there is definitely a bias. I mean, granted, like my sample size of schools is rather limited. Boulder doesn't really, you can master out, but there's not like a specific master's degree that you apply for. You can, but most people do the master's PhD track. But, you know, at Wyoming, where you guys do have a master's degree, like I saw a decent amount of folks come in specifically for the master's to be like, yeah, I'm coming in here to help me with CRM, but I just haven't seen that here at Boulder. And I think there is not just a bias against CRM here here in, in, in at, at several different institutions, right? But in terms of like, I don't think they're training. Uh, modern archaeology departments for doctorates are not training people to be archaeologists in the 21st century. I think we still have like a lot of professors who haven't been on the job market for 50, 40 years who think it's a completely different market, completely different world. And we're not ready <laughs> fundamentally, right? Because there's not, there's only so many PhD jobs. Then what do you do with all those guys who've never worked CRM or who have never done museum work? Like what do they do? Yeah. I never really noticed a, you know, I guess I kind of picked up on some, or I felt it, you know, that there was a stigma against, you know, going to get your PhD versus like, oh no, he has to go work because he didn't get into his PhD. But like, there's not, or their PhD, I should say. And like, there you feel that in school, but I don't know so much if that is the case because some people are just like, I want a nine to five. I want to go home and, you know, see my wife or my husband or right. my, but my wife and my husband. Um, but, or my wife's boyfriend, either way. Um, but what, what I'm, what I'm getting at is like, if they, you know, if academic archeologists want to look down on CRM and like have a stigma against it, they can get right over themselves because like there's so much stuff that needs to be dug up. And like, how can you have a degree about preserving the past and then just be like, yeah, but those people that dig it up are just peasants, you know? And like, it's not, they can get over it. Like, come talk to me. 100%. And the CRM grade literature holds far more information in raw data on the archaeological record than anything a PhD student will do for their dissertation, right? Like if they're doing a site report. But if you just look in the CRM grade lit, there's like hundreds of thousands of, it's just boring to read, but it's there. And Chris, you looked at, for your, your, your master's thesis, you looked on at biases between different land types based and to understand the archaeology in the past. I think, you know, private land and, and certain like federal lands, because there's so much CRM, we have a different understanding of the past on different land types, essentially. And didn't you find something similar to that with your thesis work? Yeah, yeah. So like that was probably a good segue into what we're going to talk about is that like I was using repository collections to generate a baseline of what would be expected from public lands. So that was using the gray literature, using, you know, the stuff that was just collected on a project here and there, and then compared it to this, the data that I generated by working with those, those landowners. So yes, I would say that there are differences and it's sometimes only CRM archaeology that's going to have access to that because, you know, of a right away or something like that where they're allowed to be in there. 
can you give the audience a quick TLDR of your like results from your thesis? Just so they remember. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So basically compared public versus private land projectile points grouped them into categories, temporal categories, rough ones, and then basically just saw how they compared through time and essentially found that paleo age stuff was more prevalent on on public land and the more recent stuff was more prevalent on private land. Okay, cool. Yeah, it was a it was a really cool thesis. I remember watching you do it and how excited you were to, you know, go to the road shows and stuff. Excellent. And if you do want a more like in-depth analysis of Chris's thesis, definitely go re-listen to episode 12, get the, the full thing. And with that, we're going to go ahead and end segment one of Life and Ruins podcast. We'll be right back with Chris Rowe here on episode 51 during segment two. Welcome back to episode 51 of Life and Ruins podcast. We're here with our friend and boy. He's our boy. <laughs> I don't know where to get that. So in this last segment, we were kind of talking about stereotypes or perceived notions of what CRM archaeology is. And we kind of touched upon, as David said, that we have a lot of stuff to get out of the ground. But kind of moving forward with what we wanted to talk about with today's topic, the curation crisis or the collection crisis here in the States, in which we have too much stuff already. So is it ethical for archaeologists to continue to be digging up more stuff when we have already a bunch of stuff out of the ground that hasn't been examined yet? Chris, what are your thoughts? My thoughts, and, and I've seen this play out in my professional career so far, is that we need to be much more mindful of the things that we are collecting and pulling in for curation. I kind of think about it like, you know how people say that if you save someone's life, like you are their keeper or whatever for all of time and you're supposed to take care of them. I mean, that's essentially what we're doing with artifacts is we're rescuing them and then, well, we better take care of them forever. And well, as the curation crisis gets worse and worse, I mean, we're seeing that every, every day at all of the repository jobs that I've had is that this stuff is just falling apart. It hasn't been taken care of. So I just want to plug our newest book coming up. It's uh, Our Artifacts Keeper. It's a new bestseller. It's a love romance novel. (laughs) (laughs) Edited by John Green. Absolutely. Forward by John Grisham and or Nicholas Sparks. Uh, But so we have this, this project going ongoing down in Durango right now. It's associated with kind of late Pueblo folks. And as part of this project, we just discovered tons and tons of these huge matates, just the same types over and over and over again. And we ended up collecting most of them because it's going to get destroyed and whatnot. But we're at this point where these, this museum doesn't that we're supposed, we have this curation agreement with doesn't really want all these matates. So like there's this, there's this weird place of what do we do with these artifacts that we're not putting in because we have this crisis already. And I'm, I'm not sure that there's a really, really good solution for that at the, at this moment. I don't know if you guys have encountered anything similar or whatnot. Well, I mean, just to put it into context, right. For those that might not know what a matate is like, think a mortar and pestle, but instead of a pestle being like, is it the, which one's the bowl? That's the pestle, right? We're having backwards. Yeah, so the pestle is the bowl, but a matate is like a giant, if, if you're seeing this on video, it's like a giant slab of stone that they use to grind up grains and other things. So they're heavy, A, and then B, they do take up a lot of space. It's not like a couple of flakes, so. And they vary in size from, you know, um, about, about yay big to like, you know, a whole table, and they can be even built in the ground and stuff like that. So they're just not efficient users of space. And it's, it seems like that we need to, to really think about how we're sampling the past and, and what we need to preserve as part of that. Like, do we need 20 of the same type of matate from the same site? Probably not. Probably not. And I think you have to look at like, how are you going to use it moving forward? We all know what matates were used for. We know the time periods that they fall into now. We're not doing a culture history where we need like the artifact itself when you can write a whole paper on an artifact. So like, are you going to be able to do some sort of residue analysis on it to see exactly what they were grinding? Or has it just been sitting on the surface for the last 500 years? And that's all going to be probably, you know, 
worn off of there. So yeah, I think with things like that, like personally, if I came across that, my gut reaction would be to maybe, maybe collect the smallest or a medium size one and then record the rest probably as features. Yeah. Well, maybe, right? I think one of the cooler classes I've taken on museum studies program, emerging technologies and museums, you could use photogrammetry or 3D scanning to store that data in a virtual space. And then I know Pueblo people are really particular about like taking things out. Maybe there's an agreement of like, okay, let us scan these matates, put them in a virtual space and then put them back and then record it. And it's like done. Devil's advocate here. The point of this is to keep them so people can research them eventually if they want to. Mm -hmm. So what if somebody wants to do like a residue analysis on there to be like, oh man, they were grinding cannabis out in the Southwest. Like let's test for it. And like, you want to go test, you see it in the site report, but it's not in the repository. So I guess I'm answering my own question. Like you could know to go out in the field and get it, but like, why not just collect it with the, you know, I, I see where Connor, you have that dilemma. Well, and the, and the, and the thing with our company is that we've, we do these residue analyses as part of it and we get all this information that we can out of it. And then I didn't know that. That's good. Yeah. So we 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 built that in there to have that information because I don't know past that, what kind of information you really get at. I mean, you can look at maybe patterns of where, or something like that. But even then, I think I'm not sure that photogrammetry is there at this point, but eventually I think photogrammetry is going to be able to allow us to analyze something like that, striations, all that kind of stuff. So I think, but yeah, having it, you have to, you have to be able to get some sort of data out of it in some sort of sense. Well, how many matates, for instance, are in storage already that haven't been looked at so, you know, many so like that that's, yeah exactly so that's what we're talking about like the ethical problem we already have so much stuff in storage that no one's looked at back in like the 19th and early 20th centuries where it was just like take it and put it in a museum somewhere like do you think i have a crazy question do we start deaccessioning things and open up this stuff because because there's so much of this stuff that's already in there do we i feel like that's that's got to be the way of the future is where you, you deaccession things and get and rid of them, use them as educational things and, and open up that space to, for better sampling in the future. I don't know. Do you guys agree? Disagree? I mean, I think we should start looking at the stuff we have already. So like mm -hmm. more, I think like you guys with new South, I know we can't really go into it, but the grant you guys are operating on is, you know, certain agencies are bringing you guys their collections. They haven't looked at, and that's how you're training your techs, right? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. So I think we need, a lot more of that, maybe like some of these larger institutions, like really bringing in, putting a, a we we as a field in archaeology should, in my opinion, put a more concerted effort into financing like positions to really analyze the stuff that we have. Yeah, and it, and I don't think you can do any sort of deaccessioning until we do actually know what we have, so that we can keep the most critical artifacts of of each you know set. Absolutely. Of course, there's, you know, all sorts of issues with who, you know, owns the artifacts at the time and things like that. So you have to have some sort of scope. But yeah, I think deaccessioning somewhere in the future is probably going to have to happen. It's like when Hannibal Burris asks, do you think we have enough? And the guest is like, <laughs> no. And no. he's like, I, I, think I think we have enough. enough. I think that there's <laughs> enough. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the, the point is, you know, like romantically, our, our goal is to preserve indigenous heritage in a way, you know, so like, is it wrong to pick and choose what artifacts we preserve and not based on our perceived like need for them, right? Like, do they have a spiritual, like, I guess our Western scientific need for them, like, oh, that's all we can get out of a, a mono or a matata, you know, leave it at the site. But like, if we're going to collect the rest of the site, would it not be beneficial for indigenous culture for us to just keep it all together and not separate it, you know? And like, you got to think about these things. I have personal opinions on it, but like, it's just things you got to think about when you're a collections manager. And Chris, like, obviously you, you know, <laughs> that, go, um, that goes yeah. into a whole bag of worms of like most indigenous nations want this stuff left in the ground to begin with. Right. You know, and then you got people saying, no, 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 this is like the other day, uh, this is relevant. Someone in a, in a Facebook group posted a picture of a bundle which is a huge no-no. Even in the group itself, it was like, no, don't do that. And some of the comments I saw, it was like, some, some dude was like, 
y'all Indians need to grow up. Like we're pre- preserving this for you. Cause you don't take this for you. Take this for granted. And I'm just like, dude, this is not how I want to start my morning reading these comments. But I, what David's talking about, right. that sampling bias of what do the researchers perceive as important, you know? But I think there's, there's methods you could use to integrate cultural relevance, indigenous ideas, traditions, all that stuff, and also have a sampling of certain time periods and, and areas. I think, you know, we, we, we're good at that. That's what we're good at as archaeologists is fundamentally building a sampling strategy. We don't just go in there and collect everything. It's part of our duty is to sample what we have of the past. So I think there is room in our brains and in our discipline to, you know, use a curation sampling strategy, but I don't, you know, how that works fundamentally, I, I really don't know. Well, and, and that might be one of those ways that we can sort of bridge this disconnect between academics and CRM is like, because when you're out there for CRM, you're recording, you know, what you come across and you're sampling, if you are collecting at all, you're sampling what you think a hypothetical future researcher would maybe want. But if those hypothetical future researchers came to, you know, CRM folks and agencies and said like, hey, specifically, we're researching this right now. What can you do to help us, you know, get data on that? I think that would a help kind of close the gap between the two and b lead to better research. Absolutely. I think. Yeah, I think there just has to be that communication between academic folks and and CRM folks because we're. It's yeah, and I think there's a there's a large disconnect at this point, and not a lot of respect either way between them, and I maybe that's like you said, Chris. That's the way we we ultimately begin that relationship to mend it. You know. Yeah, here's my whole thing: make the SAAs cheaper, and I'll show up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chris, why don't you come into a planes conference again, man? You I took would me do to a my first conference. One. You took me to my first one. <laughs> no, you didn't even. But yeah, you went to Lincoln. After that, I haven't seen you at a planes conference. Yeah, I know. I'm terrible. I'm terrible about well, keeping you gotta, up on you the conferences. Come, you got to come to Boulder this fall. Now that's a tempting offer. Yeah, that is a tempting offer. We're going. We're going hard. uh, we're going hard here's something chris can speak to like there's the issue of like in government right there's like the do we spend this money our tax money on these stupid liberal things or do we spend our money on the like do we not spend it on these stupid conservatives that you know like there's all that and i know half the country probably is like do we i need to be paying taxes for a mono to sit on a shelf and that is something i identify with as being like do we? And we just talked about that. So Chris, like from your federal perspective, like how, what do you think about all this kind of stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the the whole thing, right? Is if you're going to be spending the public's money to do this, the public has to get something out of it. So whether that's putting, making them more accessible through museums or something like that, you know, a lot of people are, who aren't archeologists are very interested in archeology span in the past. And it's, not hard to get the support. We just have to do it in a way that garners the support. Absolutely. And I think with all this COVID stuff going on, uh, museums are really taking this critical view of like what they, is is the museum the only thing they can use to talk to the public or are there websites or are there other avenues? And I know Talia, who was on some sort of episode in the past, really kind of talked about how that transition is occurring. So I'm hoping that like, they use that money to, to digital collections and, and whatnot. Yeah. I know the, there's been a benefit to the creation crisis, especially in the project I'm doing with the Pawnee museum. Cause we're like looking at how much space we can have and like history, Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, Wyoming are like, we're like, if we have a collections facility, can we have our stuff back? Like take it, get it <laughs> off our hands. We need the space. Like just take it back with you. And we're like, Oh sweet. Like it works to our benefit. Like they need the space and we'll take it home. But that's, you know, not, that's very, a very rare occasion. And how, I mean, like I think of, I you know, my, my, my lab, my office. Right. And we still got like field school collections from CU Boulder from like 2010 hanging around just in shelves yeah. mm-hmm. all over the place. And it's like, okay, we're running out of room, Douglas. 
where do we put the new stuff? And that's just, it's, you know, and it's just trying to find more and more space. But at some point, you, like we've been talking about, like museums had a, pr- a precipice. How much do you fund this stuff for, right? Like History Nebraska spent a pretty penny on their new storage facility. They have the electric shelves. Nice. Ooh. And I'm talking about, yeah, just Pants. wait for one of those motors to burn out Rob Bozell and see how much <laughs> that's going to cost to fix it before you have a something you can't even move anymore and access. That is something you definitely want to get analog. Like just, yes. just yeah. manually yeah. Spinning the wheels are fine. It, the wheels are fine. It. It's fun. It's fun spinning the wheel. You feel like a ship captain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I had a, a fleeting thought there. I was going to go, oh, there we go. So another benefit to having all of this stuff. I just, like, watching you like oh. think in real time, I just saw your brain function and it's hilarious. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's browser tabs that open in my head, right? And then the browser tabs drift off into the, like, the abyss and I have to literally jump from one to the other and catch it before it disappears. Like my brain is agony. Anyway, let's keep going. Um, Chris did essentially what is middle range theory for his, his thesis, right? And that is using the stuff we have in the middle, right? Not something that's not academically researched yet, but something that's already been dug out of the ground and just it's the middle ground, right? You're trying to use what we have already to infer something about the past. And Chris actually found a very poignant thing with his thesis. So it's like, if we deaccession all this stuff, somebody can't take those physical artifacts and bring them to a roadshow and show somebody to be like, Hey, do you have these? I guess you might've used cash. I don't remember, but either way, you guys see what I'm saying? Like there's, there's the idea of the theory and you got to hold it with your hands to know. Like if yeah. someone messages me on Instagram and they're like, what is this? I'm like, I, I have to hold it, dude. Like don't send it to me again. <laughs> like, I don't know. But I think, and I think that uh, this is kind of like taking a, a small tangent, but I think the publish or perish and the idea that we need to find something new, different and all this stuff is contributing to this this curation crisis because everyone feels like they have to go to a new site and find new artifacts and blah, blah blah find the newest thing because you have to publish on it and because you have to exist as a professor and that's just fundamentally what you have to do so i i think that is part of this kind of contributing factor i think you're really on to something there connor and it meshes with something that i've been thinking for a long time i think i don't know would you guys agree with this i think as a whole archaeologists are really bad at following through and fully finishing something. Yeah. I mean, my, my diss and thesis has been used on previous data. Like my dissertation, I'm not getting dates on new sites. I'm going back to old collections and redating them. Yeah. I'm not going out there with a shovel. Like sure. I, I wish, but I'd rather go to Lincoln, Topeka or Denver to look at their existing collections to see what they have and then redo it with, modern analysis like yeah and i guess we'll get to that this in the next segment because we're running out of time here and so we'll be back with segment three of episode 51 stay tuned and enjoy our word from our sponsors welcome back to episode 51 of a life in ruins podcast where we have the road show master the row 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 your boat whatever it is he also has another title he's david's editor on ethnocyanology and there's a post coming out here in the near future, Chris, I hear about. Editor-in-chief, please, and thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I believe it'll be a very interesting post that I will do a fantastic job editing. If anyone else needs editing skills, you can look me up. My LinkedIn is my name. Uh, and, he's not uh, joking. Chris is actually a phenomenal editor. He does like all of our stuff at work. He, he's edited <laughs> journals like hire the guy but yeah i got i got chris on retainer and i can literally say i got a guy and it's good and i'll just send him a text and i'm like hey edit this and he's like i'm playing D and i'm sleeping with my wife and i'm like yeah but do it now and then, <laughs> i'm very uh, good at multitasking yeah it, that was comeback fire but anyway yeah chris i i just want to say that on the air you're a very good writer very Aww. good editor and it's a blessing working with you Aww. so Thanks and a very good that. person Oh, guys, stop. (laughs) So we kind of, I think we kind of ended talking about academia, the curation crisis, new sites, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we talked in like the interim about how do we make this easy for us as curation people, as curation managers? How do we ultimately create a process method standardization that allows us to analyze things that have been recorded and things that are going to, you know, be curated in the future. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? 
So one thing that I learned in my time at, at Wyoming, especially through Dr. Jody Clowder, is that work with repositories to develop your field recording methods. That way it can transfer seamlessly into the repository. Like, yeah, there's some work that has to be done, but if the correct data is already generated in the field and is getting transferred directly to the artifact tags and things like that, it makes everything go so much smoother. So that is that would be my big one. Shout out to Jody for that. Yeah, and Chris and I call this at work, you know, the archaeology of archaeology. Like you're trying to literally piece together human behavior in the past by being like, <laughs> what were they thinking by mm-hmm. calling this that? Or like just hyper analyzing the flick. Just call it a stone, like chip stone. Let, let's just go. It doesn't need to be tertiary, quartzite, proximal, distal, you know, cortex on it. We got a picture of it. We can see that. So like, I don't know. And there's also the funny thing, and this is just an aside, like no matter what repository I've worked at and like I've worked at three, (laughs) you can find that in the 1980s and late seventies, stuff gets real wonky. And like, we're like, what were they thinking? And then it was a wild time. (laughs) Right. And then I always, I'm like, Oh, right. Cocaine. That's why this is bad. (laughs) And then it just checks out though. Like in the 80, it's like, there's just some hiccups and you're like, what were they doing? But the other funny thing is, and I'll stop talking after this, you know, when you've had a bad day in the field and you're dehydrated and you got to write notes and you just write whatever, like finding those gems is really fun when you're a curator. (laughs) I have, I have my most favorite one of that. So there's this project that was done in like 1991 maybe 1993. I was, I was a youngin when it, when it occurred and the report had never been written and it was actually a pretty significant site on the Nebraska and hadn't been like really recorded before. And it was a recreation area. So like there was numerous reasons to get a report written about this. So I got to write that report and among all of the other issues of doing archeology span of archeology span that I encountered, my favorite was this grad students field notes from it because you could tell that you know when he first got out there very precise very well written very easy to read notes and then by the last day you could tell it was like july when they were doing this in in western nebraska so it was hot there's no shade in that area at all this guy was out there and the soil's all clay and it just says the tiny little evil peds in the screen won't die. <laughs> and I just lost it because it was it was like scrawled into the journal, like drums in the deep. They are coming. And it was it was hilarious. I it was the perfect end to his journal. Yes. I, for for the CU field school, they made me and Devin because we we're the TAs take journals. What they didn't tell me is that they were going to photocopy them and keep our field notes afterwards i thought it was just like best practice and i am terrified of the day that those become public because the things i wrote in there should not be read by anyone because i thought that was just for me because i I am not i'm a very critical person and that comes out in my writing about about some of the students and just like what's going on and a little bit of uh maybe not cynicism what's the word when you're full of yourself Arrogance, narcissism, that one. Yeah. A lot of arrogance and narcissism come out of there, especially <laughs> when I have the, especially with the sites mind to myself and I'm the one in charge. But anyways, who hasn't been a horrendously arrogant archeologist the first time they get a little bit of power to run a project, especially right. when I'm wearing that pith helmet and I'm just sitting there like <laughs> aviators on the pith helmet. I'm just staring at him like you're all mine today. Ain't no breaks. <laughs> You better savor that water, boy. It's <laughs> the only you getting. I'm actually a huge fan of the peons journals because they write, you know, the the meaningless and minuscule things like it rained today, really pissed me off, or <laughs> it, it was hot as bleep today. Blah blah blah. This person's making me angry or whatnot. It's just it's it's funny. There's a lot of drama that I've seen as part of that. As yeah, well. there's like love stories in them too. You can see people are like, oh, she like not that someone looked good today per se, but you can tell they're like very fixated on writing about this one person. And you're like, okay, something's clearly up there. <laughs> and then you get the ones that I've written in the past. They're like, I saw a turkey. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, I've had to scan those in before, and they're. <laughs> Very interesting They're always a treat. I love them. <laughs> yeah. 
So back to back to the the question, Chris. What do you think are some ways we could standardize how things are done in the field? Because it would have to be per agency, right? Like you can't just do like a federal mandate of like you do it this way. It would have to be at like the the fundamental level. So like if we're using the Forest Service as an example, I would say it would be at the forest or regional level, probably forest, and then that forest. I, I think they should coordinate with whatever their main repository is to develop a standard set of protocols that work for both of them. And I think that would get a lot of things off of shelves that aren't properly curated right now into, right. into a proper environment. Honestly, I think every archaeologist should take like one collections management class. Like that should be mandatory. Please. Yes. hundred. <laughs> so when, when I started getting into this museum certificate where I'm taking like six to seven museums classes and I'm sitting there with curation folks and we're going through bags of stuff excavated in the sixties, or they're talking about how archaeologists don't care about what's going on in the field. I'm having like non flashbacks of like just telling students, I don't know, just call it pottery. They'll figure it on down the road. And now I'm the guy down the road trying to go through this. Like, what are these people thinking? Like, why? Why? Because that what I found so fascinating about this museum stuff and the museum theory is like, realistically, as we've talked about, the archaeologists are the cowboys of science, but the museum folks have to deal with it. Like that's their job for life is to keep hold these objects of cultural heritage in perpetuity. So they have to think long term. And as you said, Chris, like, you know, maybe it would be a great idea if archaeologists knowing, especially excavating private land, whatever, have an idea of what an institution is going to go to. So they have their protocols for what they need. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, you always have site, unit, whatever. But some of these other things, like if we could categorize them so it's easier for those interns or the new or the data entry folks to just blast out the data quick and get it digitized. You know, once things are digitized in general, and that this goes back to my call for we need to 3D scan things, then they're accessible instantaneously via the internet. You don't have to ship artifacts anymore. You can, or information. Once it's on the web, the internet has it. I find that archaeologists are so hesitant to get rid of these field forms that have been physically scanned and are in a location. There's there's always this hesitancy to like get rid of that this paper thing. And I don't know if that's like a holdover from like seventies, eighties, cocaine fueled, you know, note taking or whatnot, but there's, there's actually like a physical like reaction to like throwing the stuff away when we have a copy of it, everything's fine. And it's, it's, it's just breaking those habits that we need to really work on. And I think having a collections management class where you talk to someone who deals with this crap is gotta be the way like Carlton and Chris have both mentioned. Yeah. And I think the main counterpoint to what you just said, Connor, would be, oh, but like, what if there's a huge EMP or something and it knocks out all of our digital <laughs> records? Well, I can tell you if there's a big enough EMP that knocks out all of our digital records, no one's going to give a crap about archaeology anymore. Yeah. We're going to be dealing with bigger issues. So <laughs> like yeah, grab a lead vest and an AK because things have gone nuclear and we have bigger problems. Like with what happened with Texas, <laughs> the governor of Texas, he's like, all right, guys, the you know power grids are out. But the real important thing is here is one, Hillary Clinton did this. And two, what do we do with all the collections? <laughs> what do we do with our precious artifacts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're not climate controlled anymore. There is a box of bricks that is currently sitting at 65% humidity instead of 60. <laughs> oh! Dude, that's that's another thing about curation, dude. Like there's that that meme, you know, about like dads when you touch the thermostat, they pop out and they're like who touched the thermostat? <laughs> but like there's a lot of things in my day that I will like forget to check just in my general life, you know, just how it goes. But like one thing I always look at is a thermometer and like make sure the humidity is okay because like my dad has just instilled that in me like don't touch the thermostat and I'll look at it and be like oh man 78 degrees in here we need it we need to turn the air down guys <laughs> like <laughs> I don't know just little things like that but to to end that tangent taking a collections management course for anyone listening think about going into museum studies think about if you're going to do anthropology think about doing collections management route because and even if you go to do on to do like CRM or do it more academic stuff that's not collections management, just knowing the the basis of what is wrong with the, you know, the creation crisis and just having that, that lens, I guess, you know, of looking when you're digging, all right, how do I make this easier for somebody in the lab 30 years from now to figure out what this is? 
but when you're in the sun and you know it's, it's hard to write stuff but i mean even just from a professional standpoint if you have a museum certificate or a museum degree under your belt on top of archaeology you're far more employable to a wider group of people you can go work with david and chris or uh you know at a museum as an archaeologist because those exist but it's hard to get an archaeology gig at a museum anymore without a museum background you can't just show up so that's been a huge impetus of me getting this museum certificate so i can be like yeah, I could do both. Double threat. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've known several, you know, older archaeologists that still love going out in the field and can do it every day, but not everyone can do the field work forever. And it's real nice to have that backup of an inside job where there's air conditioning and plumbing and, you know, all of the things, the modern creature comforts. You don't have to talk comforts. to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It I'm is nice. For, yeah. I mean, for DMNS, that's where I want to work. If I could stay here in Colorado and continue to hunt wild game and have that cushy AC job where I could still do like field work every once in a while, I'd be, I'd be set. The oh, yeah. museum is a gem of oh, museums. Yeah. It's good. Oh yeah. And yeah. Speaking of manual things, they have like manual drawers where you like, Oh my God, they're so they fancy. Do. Yes. Oh. Yes, Rob Bozell. Oh. You should have gone with the pirate wheels, man. <laughs> should have gone with the pirate wheels. They're you cheaper. can sing Wellerman while you're doing it, too. You know, like just have fun with it. Some I don't know. Day uh, the Wellerman comes <laughs> to bring us sugar and tea and rum. <laughs> I'm glad we did that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Crap. I, I lost my thought. I guess I'm trying to get the tab. Look, look, David. Get, grab it. Oh, I typed in impudence to make sure that was the right fit. Um, <laughs> so I think we, something we wanted to end with is, so Chris, what is your, what is your one thing you wish you could tell the archaeology community, anthropology community, anything like that? What was your monologue of where things should be, what, what they are, et cetera? Oh, I have all of the power in the world right now to say, my piece. No, I, I would say archaeology is a wonderful career. You meet wonderful people, but don't forget to keep an eye out for your own like mental health and your relationships and even your paycheck. Because I think a lot of us archaeologists, no, none of us got into it for the money, but like be careful about that because the future, you know, comes faster than you think. And so make sure that you're taking care of yourself out there as an archaeologist, because we tend to run ourselves ragged. We tend to not always make the best decisions for our futures. So that would be my piece. Yeah. That's a good piece. Yeah. It's a very good piece. And uh, Chris mentioned it earlier, like going into school, knowing what you want to do, Obviously it's intimidating to do that, but like Chris, obviously like he's good at this. Like he, he is diligent at what he does and he has a very analytical mind. So don't, you know, think you're pressured into going and getting a PhD. Like my grandma's like, you have your PhD yet? And I'm like, no grandma, I live with my mom. (laughs) That was when I did. Now I don't, but I have a master's degree. I'm 26 and I live with my mom. How do you think I'm doing grandma? But, (laughs) But what I'm saying is that like, you don't have to do those routes, right? You can do the practical nine to five route and like, it's honestly more rewarding in a lot of ways. And like Chris is sitting here with, like, you can't see it, like with a bunch of guitars behind him, he gets to go home at night, like just hang out, you know, like th- there's, there's a way of archeology span of doing like a real, t- like a real life job. And like a lot of people don't show you that. And also w- one thing that I've, I've learned recently is like, don't be too hard on yourself or disappointed when it turns into just another job. It eventually will. Inevitably, it will just turn into another job. So make sure that you have, you know, other hobbies, other interests outside of archaeology that, you know, so you don't want to go to work all day. That is just another job and then go home and only be able to talk about, think about work on archaeology stuff. You know, keep your other hobbies active. Keep your other interests active. Absolutely. And Chris, I know we, we didn't prompt you, but do you have any book recommendations for our listeners? I mean, they don't even have to be necessarily curation focused. We'll go ahead and say The Fifth Beginning by Robert L. Kelly. That's a given. (laughs) Yes, that is a fantastic, fantastic little book there. 
pick it up, read it in a night. You'll be able to. You're supposed to read it on a plane ride. <laughs> there we go. Exactly. And, and it is indeed perfect for that. I am currently reading The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. And if you're unfamiliar with who she is, she's Alfred Krober's daughter, the, the anthropologist. And so it's, oh. a, it's a sci-fi novel, but basically written as an anthropologist traveling to an alien world. And it delves into what is gender, what is humanity. It, it, it is pretty fantastic so far. I'm going to have to go ahead and recommend it. Absolutely. That sounds like a fun one. What's it called? The Left Hand of Darkness. Okay. And then also Clan of the Cave Bear because it's accurate. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, all might have had a time machine. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> Those people left behind no evidence for us to study to know what their ways were. So that's true. So we, we normally ask this question only once, but because we love you, we're going to ask you again. And going through COVID and all this stuff, would you still choose to live a life in ruins, even if the ruins were in bags and were of confusing provenience? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like 75, 80%. Yeah, I would. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, what's the 20? What's the 25 or the 20? Flying an airplane. Oh, dude, I'm there okay. with you. Yeah. yeah. You got the headset for it. Right? <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, United Airlines, if you listen to a Life in Ruins podcast, I need glasses and I have never flown a plane, but, you know, give me a job. Also, Chris? listen to us when you punch your next customer. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, if you ever move out to Nebraska and work for History Nebraska, I'll, I'll take flying lessons with you. I wouldn't mind flying over the Nebraska Prairie. Hey, you're not going to crash into anything. There's nothing out there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, if you guys could, you know, please give us some Apple reviews. If you enjoy the show, you know, we've got some emails. If you guys email us directly, like we do read it. We actually love it. We've gotten a few of those that have been great. Uh, but if you can just give us a review on Apple, because that's how they measure how you're doing. So for the love of God, can you please give us some reviews? And if you can like and subscribe to the podcast, that also helps too. If you are not a member of the Archaeology Podcast Network, consider doing it. It's like five bucks a month membership if you want. You get all access to everything that's on there. Free shows. Bonus episodes that aren't on air. Yeah. You can join the Slack. Yeah. We're going to end this. See you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I choked on my wife. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So this is from, from Dean, Dean Johnnan. My dad sent me this wonderful page and I made a joke from it. I built a model of Mount Everest and my son asked me if it was the scale. No, I said, it's to look at. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thank you, Connor. Thank you, Dean. <laughs> <laughs>this episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.